Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. I'm trying to be considerate you know, and thoughtful about how I do that at the same time as really saying, look, you know, th- this hasn't actually been fair for lots of other communities who've not even had an opportunity to have a go at this and they're, they're just as deserving as any other. We need a better, better process. Hello, lovely people of podcasts. Welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy and you're on Australian politics. And with me is another Catherine, Catherine King, uh, who is the Minister for Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development and Local Government. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Thank you, Catherine. And you're, where are you at the moment? You're, you're home. I'm at my, in my electorate office in Ballarat, so yes. yeah, my home, hometown. <laughs> And we're sending best to everybody in Victoria. I've invited Catherine on because I've been meeting for ages to have uh, a conversation with her more broadly about her portfolio, uh, which I just haven't had a chance to get my mind around. So this is a, a very helpful conversation for me as well as for the listeners, I hope. Now, look, there's a bunch of things I want to drill down into because uh, you really have a number of things on the go in your portfolio. But why don't we start for the listeners with a sort of with a brief overview, right? You've 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 been sworn in as minister, you're you're now ensconced in the portfolio, you've launched a series of things. Why don't you bring listeners up to speed with with where things are at generally? Well, there are sort of three main parts to the portfolio I have. The first is sort of what's called the Infrastructure Investment Program, which is where the Commonwealth partners with states and local governments on large-scale road, rail, port infrastructure projects. And part of the job there has really been trying to get a very clear-eyed view about what the pipeline of projects and Commonwealth investment are and trying to make sure it's a, uh, you know, to the benefit of the economy and that it is actually deliverable. So that's sort of one part. In the transport space, I really regulate the transport sector. So, you know, what size of vehicle can go, trucks can go on our roads, uh, what um, passenger vehicles can get imported, uh, buses. So really it's the regulatory space around safety and design of the vehicles that can go and the emissions that those vehicles can give on Australian roads. So there's a whole whack of work that's happening there around emissions, uh, reduction, around trying to make sure we've got the safest and best vehicles that we can in Australia. And that's, I think, probably been an area that's been a bit neglected and it's very technical, but that's one bit. And the other bit I've got is I've got regional development and local government. Um, That's not to say that I'm the only minister that deals with the regions, and I'll talk a bit about that. But really, there's some large-scale grant programs and 
uh, in the regions and some work that we've been doing also with local government. And it's been this area, particularly in the regions, that the National Party have had their hands all over. So I've had a fair bit of a job to try and work out uh, where the money is, where it's gone, how it's been spent and how I can sort of try and clean that up a bit and really normalise it so we actually get a better opportunity for regions right the way across the country, uh, not just based on the colour of your politician who happens to represent your area. And so that's that's been exercising me about the three sort of arms of the portfolio I have. Mm, okay. Uh, given that we sort of ended uh, that overview with the National Party and grants and discretionary grants for the regions, obviously we've got a budget coming up in a couple of weeks. There's been a whole lot of preamble basically all the way through opposition and certainly into government about waste and rorts, and that's been a whole sort of theme. What can we expect to see? Now, I'm obviously not being silly about that in the sense that obviously we'll see the bulk of it on budget night, but in broad terms, it it sounds to me from what you've just said that you're not looking at sort of wholesale cancellation of discretionary grants programs. It sounds like you're sort of auditing levels of expenditure and and value for money and all of that sort of stuff. So take us through that a bit. Yeah, there's a bit of that. And it crosses over both in the regional space and in the infrastructure investment program because that's where, you know, commuter car parks, urban congestion fund, both of both of well, the commuter car parks were subject to a pretty damning audit around that as well. So in the regional space, uh, regional grants are, have been incredibly important, particularly for local government. They have been uh, what enables regional councils to be able to, you know, do that bit extra, particularly in the livability space, that they wouldn't be able to otherwise do because they don't have the rate base uh, that many other sort of larger city councils do, and they also have lots of infrastructure that is uh, that is ageing. So grants are important. But what we've seen happen in the grant space in the decade that we've been out of office and we've had the National Party in charge is they've had a couple of things. The first, they've had the Building Better Regions Fund, and so the Australian National Audit Office looked at that recently and to sort of paraphrase it, they basically said they started off pretty well, really stuck to their grants guidelines, but each time they got close to an election, they really basically didn't use the guidelines. And by the end, by round five, uh, they had basically thrown thrown any sense that um, there would be any decision-making outside of this small ministerial group out the window. Departments are meant to provide uh, recommendations on what to fund to ministers. Basically, in that last round, they basically didn't provide any recommendations and there was a pool of grants that they could just select from. And lo and behold, predominantly, uh, they benefited National Party and Liberal Party seats. So that's sort of what's happened there. And it's also been a bit of hunger games. So if you talk to councils that missed out, like that huge amounts of time and effort have gone into uh, grant applications Um always oversubscribed and really there's, you know, councils that just stopped applying. So part of my job with that is to try and get the regional grants back onto a footing where you have uh, a regular round that's open at the same time each year that has a two-pass process, expression of interest and then application. We get an independent panel. We're working on that to actually make recommendations to ministers we're transparent about the guidelines. They don't change halfway through or suddenly include a range of other things. So I'm working on that. And that does mean making some hard decisions about um, the existing round of the Building Better Regions Fund that wasn't assessed by the time that the government left office. The problem I've also got is they had this thing called community development grants. Now, each um, new government has to set up 
a fund for their election commitments. And that's pretty well known. And the audit office accepts that that's how you fund, you know, how you deliver your election commitments. But what the previous government did with those community development grants, that, that was normal. We sort of saw that happen. But suddenly popped up, Pauline Hanson popped up in Rockhampton with a great big check. And we thought, that's sort of strange. It's not, the election's not coming up. It's mid-cycle. We suddenly saw One Nation candidates over in WA doing the same thing. So they started just using it as a slush fund, basically. And it ends up there was $3.2 billion funded through this program. This was non-competitive, not open. No one knew how you actually got one of these things. But certainly, um, as far as I can tell, there weren't many Labor seats that got many of them. So I've got this mess left where there's 120 of these not contracted. Some of them had no money attached to them either, but I've got communities across the country who think that they've been awarded these grants. So again, I'm trying to clean those up and that'll be part of the, that's part of the budget process as well. Yeah, well, exactly. But uh, yeah, so it's just from the, the point of view of someone listening, right? If they, you know, think they got, they had a grant out of one of those those programs in the last sort of rounds, because obviously there's a, there's an effort to sort of clean up and make these discretionary grants programs function better, right? Function more in the interests of taxpayers. But what I don't really understand is whether or not in the budget we might see some grants cancelled, some projects that were funded in that last 12 months or, you know, however long before the election. So can you clarify that? Yeah, so there certainly will be. There'll be ones that particularly uh, were going to private not-for-profit interests that I can't in good conscience proceed with. Uh, there will be uh, others that there'll be a shorter time frame that there's some of those community development grants that aren't contracted go right the way back to 2016. So I've got to draw a line under those so people will be given the opportunity to get, you know, get the grant started and actually to deliver. If it's not possible, then I do want to return that money back into the pool so that other communities have opportunities. And I haven't yet made a decision about the Building Better Regions Round 6, uh, but I think based on the audit report and many of the things that I've said publicly, I think it'd be fair to say it's going to be difficult for me, given that that program, frankly, I think has now been corrupted to proceed with the the process and none of those assessments of that program have been done. So we'll be making announcements about that shortly. And in broad terms, what sort of numbers are we talking about? Because presumably this this represents a reasonably significant return to the budget if you cancel these grants. It's not huge in terms of that. I mean, it, it is on the scale of things for any community, I think. So the 120 uncontracted pre-election financial outlook grants are about $116 million all up. Right. So, But again, every grant, so when you look at those grants though, and for every community that has been, and I think like it was two days before the election, I think Barnaby Joyce wrote to, wrote to a number of them, not all of them, but some of them to say, Look! Look! You've got you've been awarded this grant. Um, some of them hadn't actually even applied for it, but <laughs> there you go. Um, so, so they've got them. Um, they're they're projects that are you know really they're important in regional communities. So I'm trying to be considerate, you know, and thoughtful about how I do that. At the same time, as really saying, look, you know, th- this hasn't actually been fair for lots of other communities who've not even had an opportunity to have a go at this, and that they're, they're just as deserving as any other. We need a better better process. So. Really, the October budget is trying to get it back onto a stable footing, uh, mm. and we'll we'll be notifying 
people about those decisions as quickly as we possibly can. Um, amusingly, uh, I had the former Deputy Prime Minister, I've said this in Parliament, write to me about two of these community development grants that he'd awarded himself during the election, awarded organisations in his electorate during the election campaign, of which, in fact, there's no record of any decision ever having been made other than his own press release. So uh, I probably won't be funding those uh, those two because oh, I've got no record of any decision in the department. And that's the, the like that is the level I'm dealing with. It is just been pretty extraordinary, frankly, just trying to find who made the decision where, how was it awarded. It, it was pretty loose. Right. Well, I was going to, yeah, it was, loose was the word that came to mind. <laughs> um, do you have to factor in, because I've, I've just sort of described there, you know, that, that there's a pot of money that can be returned to the budget, right? And we, you know, 116 million in budgetary terms is not much, but it's not nothing either. Do, does the Commonwealth at this point, do you have to factor in the risk of potential legal action if any of these grants are cancelled or do you think there's no grounds for that? No, I mean, I won't be um, cancelling any contract. Like, there's nothing that's contracted. So really, if there's not a contract in place, then you know, whilst there, there might be hope and expectation, the Commonwealth can obviously change its policy position at any time when there's mm-hmm. not a not a legal contract okay. in place. Okay, so that's, that's, the, that's the sort of demarcation line. If it's contracted uh, you have to honour it, basically, even if it's even if you've got to hold your nose slightly. I'm being colloquial, but you know what I mean. You've got to honour it. Uh, if it's not contracted, if there's not been an exchange of documents and and all of those preliminaries, then basically it's on the chopping block. Well, it's I'm considering it, and so what I'm doing carefully is looking at each looking at each grant and looking at the so so trying to do that, and as I said, draw a line under it so we can close the community development grants program in particular. Uh, and and sort of move on and try and make sure that we've got some better processes going forward. So okay. that's okay. good. But but as I said, there's a lot of worthy grants in there. There's a there's a lot of things that you know obviously are really important to communities, and I'm very sensitive about that. Yeah. So I mean, obviously you make judgment calls. Yeah. I'm not suggesting it's all a job lot and it's all gone. You've got to you, you do have to make value judgments about the merits and all that stuff. Okay. Let's move on now. You you flagged um, an overhaul of Infrastructure Australia. Uh, uh, both the board and 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 processes. Um, where is that up to now? And uh, just quickly, if if you're listening and you've got no idea what Infrastructure Australia is, Kath, why don't you just at least tell the listeners in the first instance what we're talking about? So when um, the current Prime Minister was Infrastructure Minister, he actually established Infrastructure Australia. And really what it was is a uh, independent board to do business cases and assessment of large-scale infrastructure projects to pro- provide advice to the Commonwealth about where we should put investment, where we should partner uh, with the states. At that stage, there weren't any state infrastructure bodies, so it actually was assisting the states as well. It's doing a little less of that now because there's infrastructure bodies in each of the states. So that's what it was set up to do. Um, it's since sort of done lots of different things. So partly what I'm doing, so there's been a review, uh, former secretary of the portfolio I have and um, the person who heads up the infrastructure body in Western Australia, they've done a review. They've finished that now. I've just been handed that and I'm going to, that's one of my jobs over the weekend is to have a read of that, think about what my disposition is to the recommendations and uh, as soon as I can, I'll have to take that through our cabinet processes and uh, as soon as I can, I'll make that available and open to people. I've just uh, reappointed some people and put some temporary people in on the board so that the Infrastructure Australia board can continue to function for the next six months. Uh, That's important because it's under legislation, but uh, really we want to get it on back, you know, really back to being 
being that preeminent body that provides advice to me as the minister investing in infrastructure, also to Chris Bowen as um, in energy infrastructure and Tanya Plibersek in water infrastructure, where is the best value for taxpayer money in terms of getting um, good good investment in uh, infrastructure that improves the economy, the productivity of the economy, and that's really what it needs to do. Yeah, and and uh, in terms of that general proposition that you've just sketched, Catherine, like obviously, you know, it's it's beneficial to the economy to have investment in productivity-enhancing infrastructure, right? It just sort of strikes me as we approach this budget, there's this sort of funny push-me-pull-you dynamic, right? It's sort of like... Obviously, you know, you're you're one of the spending ministers uh, from everything that Labor has telegraphed uh, before the election and in the transition and in this and in this opening stage of government. Like you've got programs on the chopping block, right? But at the same time, you know, we've heard the Treasurer pick up his warnings about uh, the the state of the global economy. Uh, it's possible we're heading for the, you know, third significant economic downturn globally in 15 years. He said to us this week, the Treasurer before he left for Washington, unlikely to be you know, a, a situation where we get absolutely whacked here in terms of growth. But obviously the government will need to be risk managing a downturn or the risks of a downturn because you know, of, of a bunch of factors, international and domestic, right? Um, so I'm, it's sort of like <laughs> you must have two two brains really for this process. I sort of I've, I've just been thinking about this a lot because it's sort of like obviously you've set you're setting about a, a process of you know, reimposing some governance and some structures and also cutting wasteful expenditure, but at the same time you've got to have that firepower <laughs> through infrastructure in the event it all goes to poop, right? Uh, you know, technical term, going to poop, you know what I mean. So how do you balance those two propositions? Um, really carefully, and I think this is the lesson, I guess, that I'm, and I'm really very conscious of. I think we've got, particularly when it comes to the infrastructure pipeline, is that um, you know, I watched in Victoria where we had a really strong infrastructure pipeline. We had the Napfine government, I think it was at the time, came in and basically said, we're going to stop investment for 12 months into any new infrastructure projects or, or current infrastructure projects. We want to reassess everything. Uh, and basically, it took five years then to catch back up again. The economy in Victoria really suffered a bit as a result of that lack of investment pipeline. So, I've, what I've got to do is carefully look at those um, where those investments are. And, you know, the previous government made some pretty big claims about how big the pipeline was. It's not, it is actually not that big. There's a lot in there that, um, you know, they've had, they had, particularly with the state of Victoria, where they had significant disagreements and the government just went out, the Commonwealth government announced a whole heap of things that the Victorians were never going to build. So there's money sitting there that, is just not, you know, the current Victorian government's just not going to proceed with. So we've mm -hmm. had to look pretty carefully about what can actually be delivered in partnership with the states. Uh, we invest, we want to encourage and, you know, uh, through Infrastructure Australia, encourage states to invest in, you know, nation-building infrastructure for the whole of the nation. Uh, but really part of that is making sure we can deliver 
reflecting the capacity constraints that are in the construction sector at the moment, but making sure that pipeline is strong going forward. And again, you know, that is lots of very delicate walking and lots of talking, uh, huge amounts of conversations with the states and territories about, you know, where are you up to with this project? Where is it in planning? What, what's the likely time frame? Can we do this? So really, that's the other part of the budget is just trying to make sure we get that pipeline as robust as we possibly can. And that will mean that there'll be projects that the previous government has said that they were going to put money, you know, for into this year or this year, that we'll be putting that into further out years because it is simply not going to be delivered in that time frame. And, and we know that that's the, that's the case. And again, what sort of quantums of money shifting between the budget <laughs> years are we talking about? No, 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 I'm not, I'm not being silly, but I'm just like, in general terms, are we talking millions or are we to, what are we talking? Yeah, we're certainly talking, I could, none, none of the really big scale projects, they're all sort of pretty on track, but some of the smaller things, I think. Um, so, so you will see a, quite a substantial movement of funds across the infrastructure mm. bit. So, you know, certainly, certainly in the millions. Yeah, interesting. And in terms of just, uh, just quickly on that supply chain capacity constraint issues. I mean, look, anyone listening to us who's doing something as modest as a home renovation or or trying to trying to get something fixed in their house knows how difficult it is actually to get a skilled person to do anything at all at this point in time. Are you concerned about that too? Because we've sort of got this fascinating post-pandemic, you know, live social experiment, right, where we've kind of, we've shut off migration. So there's a whole labour force shrinkage issue. We've got uh, supply chains that are still frozen or sporadic, like in the event, and again, I don't want to doomsay, but in the event that we do have a, a downturn, you know, the Commonwealth is going to want to step in with some sort of support for the economy. But, I mean, do, do we actually have the resources at this point in time to well, pull that lever? You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do. Look, construction's really interesting because it had a very different experience of the pandemic than other sectors. It didn't shut down other than, I think, for one week in Victoria. So all of those big infrastructure builds kept going. Um, you know, they had to, to do all sorts of things to stay COVID safe and they were absolutely amazing. And so they didn't have the mass job losses that you had sort of out of aviation and that, you know, they're now struggling to rebuild. Mm. Uh, and, mm. they, you know, they were reliant on, um, you know, we are had been reliant on overseas workers as well, but they stayed because they had employment and could actually stay in the country. But what you're seeing now is, I think, a couple of things. You've got sort of a decade of us not investing heavily in training enough young people to take on these jobs. So we've got massive shortages of engineers, town planners, um, tradespeople, as you know. Uh, they're voting with their feet as well. We get, you know, if the money's more over in the resources sector for some some of the younger people, they will head over there and they're, they're sort of investing in there. So we've got, got some real long-term skills problems. Um, we've got an ageing workforce as well. We've got very few women in construction as well. Um, so we haven't tapped into that area. Uh, and again, we've got the, the general sort of downturn of transitionary workforce without, uh, with migration not happening. Uh, so there are skill shortages and shortages, but there's also, you know, a lot of projects happening. So for example, we had three major tunneling projects in three different states at exactly the same time. We don't actually have any tunnelers here in Australia. We have to get them from overseas. Um, and so there was no sort of coordination between the three states about, well, okay, you need yours then uh, for Cross River Rail. Um, West Connect in New South Wales needs them at this time. 
and the Westgate Freeway tunnelling project, we need them then. They all were trying to get them all at the same time. So there's a bit of work being done by infrastructure ministers about how do we actually get a real sense about what are the big projects coming on, and that is absolutely a job for Infrastructure Australia to do and to actually try and get that that happening. In terms of the sort of, um, you know, there are different capacities, you know, construction will tell you there is still quite a bit of capacity in sort of what we call the tier three, the, and particularly in regional communities. Uh, housing's difficult. Again, it's patchy, but I think they're worried there's going to be actually a downturn in that housing and renovation boom mid next mm-hmm. year. So we've got mm-hmm. to really be careful to, to watch that sector as well. So um, I think there's capacity there, but again, we've got to be careful about it. And it's about trying to get that pipeline really clearly articulated, a clear understanding from each of the states and territories about where they are up to with their planning decisions and then, you know, transmitting that to the sector so that they're ready and able to go when we need them. Okay. Now, just a couple of projects that I'm interested in. When Barnaby Joyce um, was in the portfolio, he made it clear he wanted an extension of the inland rail to Gladstone. And that uh, was incredibly troubling for, uh, you know, a bunch of, well, (laughs) environmental campaigners who looked at that and thought, you know, that basically unlocks a carbon bomb. Where are you up to with consideration of the inland rail and with the, the Gladstone extension specifically? Yeah, well, it was interesting. Barnaby sort of half did and half didn't. I think he was desperate to just say we're going to spend billions of dollars going to Gladstone, but obviously couldn't get the money out to money for that. So they announced a business case. So the Queensland state government is undertaking that. Interestingly, when Inland Rail was first actually envisaged, it was actually envisaged to be Gladstone as well. So it's interesting, you know, that that, that sort of stopped and then started. So you know, whilst I think he's pretty keen for it to happen, I want to see the business case. I want to know what the implications are, uh, are of that and we'll make decisions based on that. But it's I think the business case has only just got underway. I think that the Queensland State Government is doing that. Um, and I think, you know, I think there's like there's a lot of potential around the port of Gladstone, but it's about, and it's um, working obviously on hydrogen and it's working on energy. So, mm. so looking at what those alternatives might be, I think will also be pretty important as well to see what the port does and how we actually look at that. But inland rail itself, I think, is one of these classic projects where the parts are really have been, you know, there's parts of it like around parks that have been incredibly successful. Those communities are uh, have seen special activation zones, you know, lots of money, lots of jobs. But the whole, having sight of the whole has sort of stopped. So, you know, how is it contributing to the national freight task? What is actually going to go on, uh, on inland rail that will get trucks off the roads? Is it actually a viable alternative? Those big questions have really not got answers to them anymore. I think the business case was done quite some time ago now and they've just been sort of ploughing along with this thing, not actually saying, well, okay, how is it going to contribute? Uh, Have we got this right? So Kerry Schott's going to do a very short, sharp review for me. And again, this is about I wasn't confident in the advice I was getting about this project, to be honest, from both the ARTC and from the department itself. So Kerry's mm-hmm. going to give me a, and, and Katie Gallagher, who's the other shareholding minister of this. We both own Inland Rail and uh, New Western Sydney International Airport together. Mm-hmm. Um, Lucky. So, yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so we've, we're both, both shareholding ministers of that. Um, and so on behalf of the, on behalf of taxpayers. And so what Kerry's going to do is to really show me where the problems are, try and help me find a pathway forward to those 
give me a clear-eyed view about where, where this is up to in terms of the national freight task and what we need to do to actually deliver this in a way that does actually get you know, more, more trucks off the roads, gets more goods to market, uh, but does so in a way that is best value for taxpayers and we just, you know, it, that project is not, that's not where it is at the moment. Not, you know, mm-hmm. and it is benefiting regional communities. I don't pretend that it isn't, but I've got to look at the whole, not just its, its parts. Mm-hmm. And just could I pick you up quickly? You said a minute ago that you weren't confident about the advice that you were getting both from your own officials and the ARTC. What do you mean by that? Well, I think everyone's sort of gone, you know, in a particular, a particular pathway and it's been that mm-hmm. way for so long that no one's sort of lifted their heads up above the parapet to go, actually, where are we up to with that? Everyone's just said, no, this is what we're doing. And so I I, that, that's yeah. really what I'm saying. I think people have got locked into particular positions and particular ways of being. Uh, and I think it's really hard for them to sort of lift their heads up again and take that sort of helicopter view of the project to say, okay, gotcha. I think, yeah. And that's really what I, what I need at the moment to say, you know, is that going to work? How do we do this? And so there's there's lots of, you know, there's sort of 13 major projects that make up inland rail and they're all pretty complex and have all got a whole series of problems around them. Uh, I want to sort of understand those and find a pathway on those, but I want to lift a, a lifted up view to really say, okay, how, how's this thing going to work in terms of the national economy? Gotcha. Yeah, makes sense. Um, just a couple of things aviation related. Um, a slightly, slightly light question. Uh, how much do you want to kill Alan Joyce? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think other people have got him in this insight. So it's not, it's not my, you know, like it's not my job to, um, you know, to to comment on CEOs of major corporations. I think. Oh yeah, and, and I'm being cheeky. I, I, I don't really mean that personalised. I'm just like I'm a I'm a consumer of Qantas. I'm a customer of Qantas, like everyone else. As right? I said so, to him, since becoming transport minister, he, he's managed not to lose my baggage, but I don't think he's managed to get me on time anywhere for the entire time <laughs> I've been transport minister. And I've said I've said that to him. <laughs> Well, and, but from the point of view, like on a more serious note, I mean, from the point of view of, of taxpayers, obviously the airlines were given considerable support during the pandemic uh, and obviously it's complicated. It's incredibly complicated. Businesses have been through a really, really difficult period, but there was a lot of money handed over and uh, and the customer experience on on, you know, is, is, t- is not great. No, it's not. And I think he's done, I mean, I, I think he, he would disagree with me on this, but I think he's done substantial damage to the brand. And I think people are incredibly frustrated and, you know, but we haven't had a choice, you know, what, what else do you do? You've got to get somewhere and that's the, the plan you get on. And um, people have been incredibly patient. And I do think their staff have been amazing as well. I think they've borne the brunt of people's uh, frustration yes. and anger everywhere. Yeah. And they, you know, managed to get through COVID, you know, and they still love the industry so dearly. But um, so I think there's a lot of repair that, um, that that the board and Alan need to do, both with their workforce, with the union, who's um, pretty up in arms about that, about him, uh, but about the um, airline overall and its customer base as well. But, um, you know, I think that, that competition is really important in this space. And again, we haven't had that for a long time. I think um, we would have done things very differently had we been in government during the pandemic with Qantas. I think you would have seen uh, us take an equity stake in both that both that airline and in Virgin as it was about to collapse. I called on that certainly for Virgin. And I think had yeah. we do- had the government done that, uh, it would have been getting a really good return as we saw today for its for its investment. 
but I think it would have had a lot more control over some of the decisions that were being made in the national interest, you know, that, that may not have been necessarily in the, the sort of broad-term national interest. But we are where we are and really my job is to try and make sure that the conditions um, that uh, we regulate them under uh, are being met and that we actually, you know, push push them in the, the you know, quality of service space. Uh, we're undertaking a review of disability standards, for example, at the moment. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about some of the poor experiences of people with disabilities in, in aviation at the moment. Uh, I, I think it's, you know, some of the stories are just frankly appalling and I think, you know, there's work to be done there. Uh, but I think in the longer term, it's really about how is the aviation sector recovering from COVID and how do we actually get back to putting some, so at least some uh, modicum of competition back into the aviation industry as a whole? And I think at times that's probably going to see me butt heads with Alan a little bit, but um, I don't mind that. Well, well, definitely, but, yeah, but anyway, it'd be intriguing to see what you can do actually to spark more competition because, I mean, it's, it's been a long time since I've reported these issues in details, but but that's always been a flashpoint in the aviation industry in Australia. So anyway, that's a big watch this space. Um, just one a project close to you, you're obviously regional Victoria rather than Melbourne, but I gather there's a whole stink building up in in Melbourne about a third runway in the west of Melbourne. You've got to make that decision. Where's that up to? So the first part of that is that the um, Melbourne Airport have submitted what's called its, um, I think it's Major Development Plan, uh, where basically it says we want to build a runway. Uh, they then have to go through an application process and a planning process to say this is where we want to build the runway and this is what it looks like. We're not at that yet. We're right at the first stage. Uh, these are really difficult, um, big-scale projects. They have an impact on, on, you know, they'll have an impact on anyone where, wherever they go. To some extent, you know, I think part of the problem for Melbourne is there was an expectation and a lot of communication that the runway would go one way. Uh, they've found that for a whole raft of reasons that's not as safe as they thought it was going to be, so they've made a different decision about that. So communities are going to be pretty activated around that, but I'll have, a, as planning minister, have a decision to make around that and communities will be able to submit and, and, and be part of uh, part of that process. But really I have a planning decision to make, but it's not we're not there yet. And, and what's the sharp end of it? How how long before you've got to make the decision? I don't mean down to the day. I mean, is it months or weeks? So to some extent, it depends on the on the first component of it. I've got a there's a short time frame under the the act, but but again, that does not mean that the runway is is given planning approval. It's sort of the start mm. of the process for that. Uh, that's about well, I think it's about fifty days all up. I think I've, I've, um, and then it'll depend when the um, when Melbourne Airport uh, put in. Uh, the application for the actual third runway itself. They haven't actually put that in yet. So there's okay, um, gotcha. they haven't done that yet. So that'll depend on when they do that. And then there's a clock ticking from there. And and obviously the, the west of Melbourne is Labor territory. So it's uh it's uh, you know obviously, you know, and these things are always political. I don't need to tell the politician that these things are all Always political. I, I'm, I'm sure you're aware. Anyway, it'd be interesting to see how that all plays out. Just quickly at the end, um, I'm, I'm very interested in electrification and uh, and that strategy because obviously you will oversee that component of the climate transition policy for the government, uh, both for 
you know, commercial vehicles, passenger passenger vehicles, etc. Now, I think uh, I've been off for a couple of weeks on a riding project, so it's possible things have moved and I've missed them. But I did see Chris Bowen at one point, I think fairly close to when I left, uh, certainly not ruling out vehicle emission standards, for example, as the backbone of a transition or an electrification policy for transport. Why don't you tell the listeners broadly your thinking about that? What does drive the change? I was on a panel recently with um, the head of the uh, Electric Vehicles Council, uh, and uh, I can't remember exactly his statistic, but even for me, and I follow these issues very closely, it was kind of, it was really mind-focusing, <laughs> like what's got to happen in in quite a short space of time uh, in order to align Australia's transport emissions with our overall objective and with the global objective. So give us, give us an overview of what you think about all of this. Yeah, so transport um, accounts for quite a, you know, I think it's about 19% of emissions, so it's an industry, and so that's everything from you and I driving our cars to uh, uh, an Australia Post um, fleet vehicles going around the country to our trucks, to our trains, to shipping, to, to our um, planes in the sky. So transport's pretty big. Um, some industries are easier to shift and to shift to electrification than others. So our planes, obviously, new, mm. not so good, not so we haven't mm. invented one of those yet. But so sort of sustainable aviation fuel is the way there. But obviously, in terms of the passenger vehicle space and the small vehicles that you know deliver our goods to our door, um, really electrification is the way is the way that the future is is heading. So we've put out an EV strategy, and one of the elements of that that I'm consulting on is a thing called fuel efficiency standards, and that really is about trying to look at how you encourage um, uh, manufacturers of vehicles to sell more. Uh, electric vehicles in Australia. And at the moment, there's no incentive for them really to bring electric vehicles to our market. So often people who are looking for an electric vehicle will say, I just can't, I've seen this overseas, this one looks fantastic. It's not available here in Australia. And there's no, the dealer will say, well, they're not planning to actually make it available here because there's no no sort of stick to make them do it and no sort of incentive. So really that's what that's about. The balance, I think, with this is, and I think it's really interesting that Chris and I are both, Chris Bowen and I are both doing this together because we represent very different worlds in the in the Australian mm. community. So, no, he's mm. got an electorate of about 20 kilometres square. He's got an electric vehicle. Uh, he's got, I think he's got EV charging at his home, I'm not sure, but he's, he's certainly um, converted. I drive a diesel. I'm absolutely upfront about that. I tow a 1970s caravan around my 5,500 square kilometre electorate. Uh, and, you know, vehicles that are, that would suit me are not available here in Australia right at the moment. So part of the EV strategy is about how do you convert people like me and make it easy for me, people like me to be able to, to convert to an electric vehicle. And at the moment, I don't have a choice. I don't have choice about the vehicle that I could use because of the, the towing capacity and the distances I need to travel. Not enough charging stations for me to be able to do that in remote parts of the uh, the electorate that I have currently. And so part of what the EV strategy about is sort of trying to trying to put 
all of that together so that we provide as much opportunity for people like me uh, to, to make the decision to go to electric and make it easy for people like me. And so that's part of what the fuel efficiency standards are doing, but it's also what the, the Powering Australia, the uh, Driving Australia charging stations and hydrogen highways are about. So that's that's part of the work that we're doing around decarbonisation of, of transport. But there's a whole lot also happening. So, you know, Tron, I just was meeting with the Bus Industry Council before and uh, about electric buses and about where they're going in terms of, of that uh, and hydrogen buses. And so there's a whole lot that industry is doing. And we really want to, you know, in working with Ed Husick in uh, the industry space with Chris and I, really try and do the most we possibly can to get industry to convert and make it easy for them to do so and profitable for them to do so. And I'm very strongly of the view this has to be, you know, consumers will, will vote with their feet when it suits them, when it's in their economic interest to do so and it's convenient to do so. Our job as a government is to make that happen for them. And in terms of just the, this is the last question, just in terms of the um, fuel efficiency standards or vehicle emission standards or whatever you end up applying in this space, obviously this has a history. The, the Labor Party floated the idea of doing this before the 2019 election. Uh, it was weaponised as the war on the weekend. Now, obviously, everything, as you've said, right, it's, it has moved the whole calculus and the debate has shifted, but range anxiety obviously persists in Australia. But also, I'm just curious, like, is that sort of regulatory approach to drive the, the transition, something the government is will actively pursue? Well, it's certainly in the EV strategy, we've we've said we'll talk it with, you know, we want to talk with the industry about it. And so we've put that in as uh, part of the discussion point. We're expecting submissions on that. Uh, we'll certainly look at that. That's certainly, I think, New Zealand are going down that path. I think we'll probably be, we're at the sort of end of the, the supply chain as they are. So I think if, and they have, sorry, gone down that path already. Um, you know, it's certainly one of the things that we will look at. Uh, I think industry is a lot further along than it was even in 2019. And I think that's sort of, you know, the notion that you had around the, the you know, electric vehicles are going to end the weekend and, you know, mm. there's no such thing. We, you know, we saw the nonsense of Susan Lee saying there's no, nobody makes electric um, utes. Well, they do. <laughs> so, you know, that's, uh, I think we're seeing a bit of that, that sort of happen from the opposition. But I think industry has been really pretty good and pretty open to the idea that this is this is where we might go. And I think they're desperate. Mm. When you talk to dealers, like they, they cannot get enough electric vehicles into the country to sell, Like they just mm. cannot get enough in. Uh, their demand is pretty high, but, um, you know, we've got to make sure that, that's, that we have both a carrot and stick approach I think is important. Yeah, and anyway, that's an interesting mindset change because even though we don't have a domestic manufacturing industry for vehicles, uh, you know, it, it's always been extraordinary to me that the motoring associations and others have basically just be, have prevented this at every turn. But you think there's been a shift that makes it a bit easier? Yeah, I think they have, there is. And I think that, um, you know, so long as we're balanced about the approach we take, and I think that's that's really what they're asking for, that they want to be part of the change as well and they want to make sure that we don't, you know, we don't bring them crashing down. We're not in, interested mm. in the business of doing that, but we want to work with them to actually make this possible. But I think they're seeing consumer demand pretty high and I think they want to be part of it as well. Well, that's a cheery note to end on, Catherine. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. We could we could do a lot more on this. I think we've only really just touched the sort of surface of the various things that uh, that Catherine's working through in this quite large portfolio. Um, so anyway, thanks uh, for your time. Thanks to the listeners. We'll be back next week.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.